Well, welcome back to another podcast of the Guardian Mindset. And as always, we're going to start out with a quote. And this week's quote is, the key to successful leadership today is influence, not authority. And I use this quote because I think it most directly represents my mentor and advisor, uh, Chief Charles Reynolds. And I'm very happy to have Chief Reynolds uh, as my first guest on the podcast. And we'll go through our history together. But I got to tell you, um, the one thing I would advise to every one of you that are watching this podcast is that the key to success in life is surrounding yourself with people that are not afraid to tell you the truth, that are not afraid to tell you what you should hear, whether you want to hear it or not. And they're really, um, really interested in your success. And we call that a mentor. And the definition for those of you that, that don't study is a mentor is a definition of a mentor is an experienced and trusted advisor. Now, I got to tell you, and Charlie knows this, in my life, I've had three very prominent mentors. I've had a lot of little mentors along the way. Everybody, you know, you get mentors when you're the, you know, you're new on the shift and a shift sergeant, you have mentors, but I've had three and one was my big brother, big sister for my childhood. One was my father-in-law and I'm happy to say that one that's been a part of my life for, we can't even figure out how long, right, Charlie? Like 15, 18 years, something like that. Something like that. So let's start by welcome. I'm glad to have you on our first podcast. Well, thank you. Right. Glad, um, to, glad to be here, actually. Glad to be anywhere. And actually, it's nice to be in person because we locked you down during COVID, didn't we? We did. And he was not able to go out at all. And uh, so, uh, so you know, one of the things that's going to be very interesting for all of you is that, uh, you know, when you get to this point in, I, I started the podcast by saying, when I get to this point in my career, you got a long resume and you know, you got all the bells and whistles and then you get to Charlie's career, which is just a little bit longer than mine, not that much, right? And you got a, you know, a long, and I'm looking at a resume here, uh, which he doesn't know that I have access to, but <laughs> that, that is pretty impressive. And, and, and I'm going to, I can't do it justice, but I just want to make sure that we focus on. So the purpose of this this podcast is we could be being watched by someone who wants to be a police officer and somebody who is a brand new police officer, somebody who's been on the job for 10, 15 years, maybe even a police executive who's just interested in following the Daigle, the, everything that we do here in DLG. And so, uh, and so let's start out with our relationship and how we got going. And uh, so, so uh, where did we meet, Charlie? Well, <clears throat> interesting enough, we met uh, in class. Uh, we both were attending a, a training class in San Francisco. Internal affairs, right? Internal affairs. And uh, <clears throat> I was looking for a seat and uh, uh, one at the end of the table so I could escape quick. <laughs> and and uh, there was a vacancy. And I sat next to this young man who uh, and it turns out to be Eric Daigle and, uh, from Connecticut. And uh, when he said that, I had an exclamation, which I won't repeat now. And, <laughs> and, and we said... Jake can buzz it out if it's really bad. Uh, well, you know, I, I'm from Connecticut. I said, well, no shit. And <laughs> I remember it like it was yesterday. That's and, even allowed on the podcast world, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and, and, and so, <clears throat> as, as police people do when they go to class, we sat in the same seats for the three, three and a half days we were there. And... and uh, of course, the first challenge was I, I found out you were uh, uh, an attorney, and I had to get over that hump a little bit. Oh, that's not fair. And then I found out you had been a state trooper, so I had to get over that. So once I got through those, <laughs> once I got through those two uh, hurdles, uh, we had a pretty good, uh, in, a really good two or three days. And uh, I remember you said you were interested in doing some training. I actually were doing some training. And at the time... Um, I uh, had uh, had a discussion not, not too long before that with uh, Wayne Schmidt, who was the director of AELE, and Wayne says, you know, we're, we're getting older, we have to find some young guy to, to fill in and take our place, and so on and so forth. And so I said to Wayne, I said, hey, uh, you know, I just met this Dago kid, um, <laughs> former state trooper, I won't hold that against him, but uh, he... Um, likes to do some training. I said, maybe we should give him a shot. And so um, 
you might remember this. And so he he did put you on uh, a, a LOS uh, class. At the legal officer section. Legal IACP, officer section yeah. at IECP. Yeah. He put you on, and I remember going over, and we hardly knew each other, really, at the time, just from that class. And so I knew you were on the schedule, so I went over to, you might not remember this, but I went over oh, to. Oh, I remember, like, it was yesterday. I went it was over my to, first uh, go-to. I thought yeah. I was going to pass out. Well, <laughs> yeah, I thought you were, too. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, I went over to see your performance because, after all, I had recommended you, and I wanted to make sure it went okay. And you were pacing in the hall, and I said, you ready? He said, well, I'm a little nervous. What are you nervous about? He you said, well, look in the front row. And there was Wayne Smith with his arms folded <laughs> sitting in the front row. And, and of course, uh, uh, you did very well, of course, and uh, the rest is history. We've, uh, we've uh, had a relationship ever since. Well, and a lot of history. And, and uh, just for, I will tell you that. So I was working as a lawyer at that point, And then it was, uh, we started to interact with a lot of training programs. And then more and more, um, you know, just keeping in touch and then, I'll be honest with you, one of the reasons why DLG is here today is because uh, I was getting burned out in the legal arena and it was just a it was just a circular no help going on. And we had been watching all the things that were occurring across the country. And I kind of was I wasn't making a difference or doing anything. It it was doing my job, but it wasn't valuable. And I considered opening up um, Dago Law Group and just focusing on what I thought I was good at training and consulting work and just trying to see where it led and and i give all the credit to charlie because uh you know i had a job and i have three kids and they were young and i was making a great salary and i have a very supportive wife who i went home and decided to say i think i'm going to quit my job to open a law firm she said do you have any clients i said no (laughs) she said well what's going to happen i said oh well charlie says i'm going to make it because when i said to you should I do this? You said yes. And, and that's the one thing that I got my, that's the one thing when I was looking for my, my quote for today. Um, you know, one of the things I think that I speak for all of the individuals across the country who you've mentored, and there's a lot of them, um, that you do so with, uh, not with authoritative application. I mean, I'm always interested in the fact that we're going to get into your history, but as you sit here today, how many of your former cops have moved on to be uh, chief of police? Uh, about 35. 35. And, uh, and how many cops were there in Dover, New Hampshire? Well, uh, uh, <laughs> depending on when I started, from 40 to 60. And, and I think that has a lot to do with, and I really want to get into this a little bit with you because your philosophies are philosophies that I have uh, embraced along the way and we call them Charlieisms, and they're very direct and sometimes not properly correct, but they do work out well. Um, but let's uh, let's if you would if you would though introduce yourself to those watch. What is, tell us about your law enforcement career? Do you want your resume? So you can follow along? <laughs> well, well, no, but it, you know, uh, uh, given the fact that uh, last May I was my fifty uh, fifth anniversary of being appointed chief and I actually did have a luncheon celebration with the person who's presently the chief in Guilford New Hampshire along with the the gentleman who followed me as chief in Guilford so we had a three person so that was that was uh um 1966 correct yeah that would be your first of five police or interim police (laughs) chief jobs um, well, maybe that's, that may be the correct count, but <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I was, uh, I, I had, uh, been a police officer, of course, since 62 when I got out of the Air Force. And let me just interrupt you for a second there, because in my calculation, that's 59 years serving in the law enforcement industry. Sorry. Well, not, uh, not counting my Air Force. Well, you know, my thoughts on that. <laughs> I, I do. The chair force is not really a... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, but you were Air Force, you know, you're Air Police, and you served, Air, Air you served for four years, four years and nine months, tour overseas, uh, and Kunsan career, actually. Well, thank you for your service, as always. Well, thank you for yours. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, while I was in in Korea, we we had the Berlin crisis, and so I ended up extending for nine months voluntarily. I figured if we're going to have some uh, 
excitement. I might as well be there. <laughs> and so, and then of course the Berlin crisis subsided. So I came back stateside with nine months left to do instead of being discharged, but that was okay. Uh, 42 days left, we had the Cuban crisis. And I figured, whoa, this is not gonna be good, but we did get out on time. And uh, <clears throat> I got out on a Saturday and I was uh, directing traffic at four o'clock the following Monday. And at 4.20, made my first DWI arrest. So uh, I started off uh, pretty well. The guy almost ran over me. Actually, I was doing traffic. Uh, I guess you don't even need to worry about probable cause then. No, yeah. no. I mean, uh, Arthur, uh, Arthur O'Neill was taking me down to show me how to direct traffic. Of course, being a, uh, in the air police, I knew a little bit about how to direct traffic. So well, Usually traffic's a little bigger, like planes and stuff, right? Uh, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey. uh, how do you like this? <laughs> anyway, no, no. I, I, so I, I had, uh, of course, ahead of time, had applied for a police job and and uh, went on the job. And uh, so uh, I, I was a police officer for a number of years in, in two, two communities. And then I, which when I was in Lebanon as a police officer, my chief, I couldn't make sergeant. So I said, I can't seem to make sergeant here. I got to find a chief's job. So uh, the, the chief said, you know, that's not a bad idea. And so this Guilford job came open. Uh, chiefs were coming and going. They had five in a year. And so I said, that sounds exciting. So I applied, and my chief helped me, and I got the job. So so as an officer? As an officer. Wow. Yeah. Can't I, do that anymore. And uh, <clears throat> I was appointed chief. I was, uh, I think, the fifth, fifth or sixth one in a year. And I stayed there four and a half years, and... Um, um, went on from there. I went uh, back to Lebanon as a police chief, and during the time when we had the uh, the sit-ins because of the Vietnam War, the uh, <laughs> the draft bus would come in town to pick up the draftees, and of course all the students from <clears throat> Dartmouth College, along with their professors, would come and sit in front of the bus. So we had to uh, uh, extract them from the roadway. And did so uh, many times without a single incident, by the way. That's the way to do it. And uh, um, then I went uh, from there, I went to Lebanon and was there for 19 years. You know, and then to Dover. And then. To Dover, Dover uh, I went from Lebanon to Dover for 19 years. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, and then you were an acting city manager in Dover? Yeah, I, I, well, yeah, I was acting city manager and. You know, and then I took loss of my senses and ran for city council when I was mayor. And then I, after some uh, intensive therapy, I, <laughs> I, I I quit politics and went, went back to... And I'm going to go with the intensive therapy was your wife, because that yeah, yeah. that's, that's what happened in my world. Well, so. actually, actually, you know, uh, one of the reasons I actually did um, get involved in the city government in particular, because I was doing some consulting... And when you'd go out to do consulting, say, oh, this is another police chief. He's just going to come and tell the police, say that the police chiefs are doing a good job. So I had to get some credibility with these communities that I was um, uh, working in. So, you know, once I got to the point, and, I, you know, kind of surprising, I get to be mayor, but uh, I'd go and, you know, they say, well, this is uh, former police chief and mayor and so forth. Uh, it had some additional credibility insofar as the community being able to uh, at least figure out you'd give them a fair shake. Yeah, and, so, and, and that's an important point right there because for everybody that's building their resumes and something you've always told me, make sure that you have, you know, you just don't become one-sided. And yeah, if you really truly want to be involved in the accountability aspect of law enforcement, you got to prove your, you got to, it's an uphill battle, right? I mean, it's always uphill battle. An uphill battle. And, you know, fundamentally though, if you can't call them offside, you can't call them wrong, you don't have any credibility when you call them right. Yeah. So you have to be able to, as you say, you have to be able to fear and the facts are the facts. Uh, and um, if uh, there's uh, some uh, violations of the policies, the rules, you have to do what you have to do. Yeah. <clears throat> and then uh, the f kind of the tail end of your career, uh, with the Navajo Indians and then interim police chief in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. And then you finally said, I'm done with this police chief thing. 
Well, <laughs> sort of. Uh, but I, but I, I actually, what's what really sort of ended the police chief business is when I started doing the uh, work with the Department of Justice. Right. And that was in 1997 when I uh, became auditor for the uh, Steubenville Consent Decree, which was Consent Decree Number 2, by the way. And, <clears throat> and let me just explain a little bit. So there's, we're going to talk a little bit about consent decrees, and I want Charlie to explain it to you. And there's a, a federal civil statute called 42 U.S.C. 14141 that was put in play in 1992 um, in response after the... Uh, 92, right? I think it was 92. I think it was a little later. You were 94 for Steubenville, right? No, I was 97. That was number two. Oh, I think it was 94 was the law. Yes. The law was prior to that, but the first uh, consent decree where where the feds uh, went in was uh, Pittsburgh. Okay. And uh, Steubenville was number two. All right. So tell everybody, so you've been working... In, in you know, nowadays everybody talks, so they use words like police reform and, and there's always been a lot of pushback. And one thing is clear is the political agenda drives some of this application. But, um, uh, and I've had the opportunity to work for you in a multiple of these projects. Um, and, but what is, a, how would you describe what you've been doing on that DOJ or, or consent decree application? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it as succinct and brief as I can. <clears throat> There's three or four phases. First of all, um, uh, DOJ would get a complaint or complaints, usually that there's violations of civil rights in a particular police department. And if, if they thought it merited any further action, they would uh, institute an investigation. And during the investigation, they'd try to determine if there was a pattern in practice, not just a particular incident, but a pattern and practice of violations of civil rights. And if, if they determined it was, they would, they would give the community an opportunity to engage in a uh, consent decree, which, which really would lay out a number of reforms, usually having to do with how they're going to handle force events, um, citizen complaints, training, and, you know, um, any personnel-related matters. So they would lay that out in a in a potential agreement, which they would negotiate, and either either the community and DOJ would come to agreement on how uh, whether or not they were going to implement that, or they wouldn't. And if the community didn't agree, then justice would sue them. And in most cases, they'd come to an agreement, and then the agreement gets um, approved by the federal judge. And after that, they would appoint a monitor or a monitor team, and their job would be to make sure that the provisions of the consent agreement were implemented. And so um, there are various stages. First, the investigation, and then, then when they uh, have the uh, consent decree, or sometimes they call it a settlement agreement, <clears throat> if they have that, then they have the monitor team that has to issue periodic uh, reports for the court. And it, it, and also the DOJ would usually have a police expert that would uh, sort of advise them on whether or not the monitor team was doing their job. And right, right. So in all of that, um, I've had the good fortune to work on a number of consent decrees. Actually, do you know, I mean, I was just looking do you, off the top of your head. Do you know many on those? How many you've actually worked on? Well, actually, because there's not a lot. They're not all on your resume. Well, I looked at. I looked it up actually the other day. Did you? Because I yeah. knew you knew I was going to ask you that. I knew you were going to ask me about it, so I looked it up. And actually, I've worked on 22, in one form, either in the investigatory stage. And there's only like 30 something of them. There was only 27. I think there's like. I want to uh, say it's low 30s, right? Then 22 in counting. That's counting Oakland, which is. Not a federal consent degree, but it looks just like it. It's the same deal. The only difference, the only difference in that one, and then the others was it was brought by private plaintiffs instead of by the federal government. But when you look at the agreement, it looks just exactly the same, and it's under the auspices of a federal judge. So well, right now, I'm 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 working on two as the DOJ expert. I'm on, but not on a team or in the investigation. And we've had some fun over the years, one, because I've worked with you, but there were actually projects where you and I were on 
different sides of the triangle, we like to call it, as we were doing projects for different uh, clients across the country. So, you know, in, in the key, I just want to make sure the listeners understand two things, which I think get misinterpreted along the way. And first and foremost, this is pattern and practice abuse, which means it's continuous. This is the way we do it here application. But more importantly is I think a lot of times, you know, we're used to hearing all of the, well, these consent decrees don't work. These consent decrees are, they're just people trying to make money. But, but what people don't remember is that the city agrees to this. They, they have to enter into this agreement. So if they didn't like it, they should have said something in the beginning, right? That's true. And, and, and they, they work or don't work to the degree that the chief buys in. Right. I mean, I don't want to pick on my fellow chiefs, but it starts at the top and it ends at the top. If the chief does not want the department to turn around and comply with that, it just doesn't get done. No. Because there's too many ways not to get it done. And so, um, you know, you just have to be diligent about it. Well, I mean, the thing is, we could do a whole podcast just on your history, but I'm, in, in, I'm afraid of people turning us off. So we're going to move on to but the, what is amazing. And I just can't get enough out to, you know, and I say this to him as my I say this to Charlie as my mentor along the way is that I've really focused the last 10 years of trying to extract as much information and knowledge as I can from him because, you know, and that's really what we want to focus on today is, you know, given a little snippets to those people that are out there that, that you know, that are just trying to figure out. Because, like, let's start with the... I just want to say one sure, thing about the consent decrees, which, you know, is kind of interesting. We'd go out on the investigations, which was always, always interesting to determine whether or not there was a pattern in practice. And in that process, we'd interview a lot of people, the mayor and, you know, a lot of uh, people in the community who, who had been... Uh, theoretically uh, damaged by the police yep. and the police officers. And this happened almost probably every time, but at least almost every time, that we'd be interviewing some police officer and a police officer say, well, chief, why are you here? And we'd try to explain it. So, well, you know, um, I've been doing these things uh, that you now find fault with and I've been writing my reports and uh, the sergeant signs it. The lieutenant signs it. The chief doesn't say anything to me. I, I presume this is okay. And with that said, why are you here? Yeah. And, and you know, that, that has always rung a bell with me when I say, well, you know, there's a problem here. And too often we focus on the police officers doing something wrong, but it's not necessarily the police officers doing something that they know is wrong. They're doing something that they're allowed, authorized, or instructed to do. That's why it's called pattern and practice, right? Exactly. I mean, they, they didn't make the pattern. They were taught the pattern. They're taught. And, and interesting enough, you and I have worked on projects where the reform has taken decades. And I and people I always love were there's some, obviously there's, there's always people that do things their own way. But one of the issues that I always find is, well, why does it take two decades to fix something? Well, it takes two decades for some people to retire. <laughs> exactly. You, know, you got to, if you want to make change, you got to sometimes make real change. Um, the only, before I, I have a couple of general questions, but the mm. only thing is also, uh, you know, you have held a lot of very prominent positions over your years. And, and I think one of the most prominent, or at least as being your mentee, one of the ones that I think is the most prominent, and I was going to bring the, the picture in here and show it to those on, on video, but I'll have Jake put it up in the video. How's that? And that is, uh, you were IACP president and the international chiefs of police president, which is a, a very distinct honor in this country. So what year were you the IACP president? 88, 89. And, um, and you've been directly involved in the IACP, I would assume for years before that. And I know you have since. Well, of course, in those days, back then, uh, you started off as six vice president. So prior to being president, I had been directly involved for six years, six, five, four, three, two, one, right. and then president, and then uh, all past presidents remain on the board of, board of directors. So <clears throat> I've been on the board ever since and, and generally go to the meetings. Yeah. And in fact, we just, before this podcast, we are, Charlie and I are both on 
the Civil Rights and Human Rights Committee for the IACP hand-chosen 38 individuals in this country, and we make up, I think, the, uh, the Civil Rights uh, Subcommittee, Policing and, and the Civil Rights Subcommittee. Um, so let's get into some advice, because that's what you're the best at. I, I mean, I, I, I have to put you uh, in the area of you always, I, and, I, and I tell people all the time, I have a successful business, and I've worked very hard doing a successful business, but you always have to have somebody to call to ask a question to. You always have to bounce things off somebody, and you're my bouncing guy, and you know that because I call you up, and or you will always, he always loves to start with this little thing It goes, um, I'm not minding your business, but I'm going to mind your business. And I say, go ahead, mind my business. It is what it is. All right. But and I um, can I can usually tell whether you really like the advice or not, <laughs> depending on how long the conversation goes afterwards. <laughs> well, you say I have a I have an attention deficit disorder problem anyway. So, um, so let's start with the younger the younger people, which which is probably because I know. Looking at a 22, 23-year-old police officer today, this is a phenomenon for me. Like, and we agree on one thing. This, this, um, this thing we call law enforcement has to continue, right? It's part of the operation of this country. Um, we, look at, we look at a very shallow recruiting pond. It's, we call it a puddle nowadays. Um, we look at a difference where... I know you and I know myself. I knew I wanted to be a police officer and that's that was my guardian mindset. And whether it's, you know, everybody can argue or disagree about why people are not choosing this career as they were years ago, whether it was social media or don't want to be a YouTube video or whatever. But let's say we've gotten through to a couple of them and we've been lucky enough to get them out of that recruitment puddle and they've accepted the challenge of being a police officer in, in brand new in 2021. If you were to give that individual some of your your influence and your 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 experience and advisorship, what would you focus focus on the brand new officer? Well, given the present environment, it's it's a little bit difficult to say. But what I would ordinarily say is. You know, you have uh, an opportunity a lot of people don't have, and that's you can every day have an opportunity to make someone's life better. And you need to go out and do that. And, uh, you know, uh, in the environment today, it's uh, hard for an officer to, to realize they can go out and make someone's life better because, you know, if you read the media, uh, you don't think the public likes you. Uh, they respect you, but a lot of people do. We can't forget the fact that there's a, you know, they used to talk about the silent majority. Well, we have a, a silent majority now, but it's much, much larger. But it's much more silent, which is unfortunate because when, when folks come out and say, well, they support the local police, you know, they become subject of, of criticism oftentimes. So, you know, it is an opportunity, you know, even in this environment and probably even more so in this environment, for a police officer to make a difference in someone's life every day. Right. And, and every encounter is an opportunity to do that. And I found that. Didn't you find that? I found that. And if you, if you don't seize that opportunity and make every encounter with every person as positive and, and as good as you can make it, uh, then we fail. Well, you know, and, I should have asked one question before that one, but it actually runs in line. Having spanned law enforcement for, you know, 60 years, almost 60 years, I don't push it ahead for you. How's that? You know, Give or take. you've watched a lot of changes. And I hate that word. You know that. You watched a lot of... Evolution. Evolution. There you go. Great word. You've watched a lot of evolution. But, and, you know, do you ever sit back and think about how law enforcement's progressed? And if you do, what are the things that really have jumped out at you, either good or bad? Well, uh, a lot of things have changed, and, and you know, fundamentally, I, I think uh, technology is responsible for a lot of the change because it's, it's, it alters people's attitudes towards the police, uh, but it also uh, provides opportunities for the police to do things that they couldn't do uh, before. I mean, when I started out, <clears throat> uh, we didn't have any such thing as two-way radios. Uh, <laughs> nobody worn cameras. And, and nobody worn no cameras. No tasers. And, and, you know, you'd, you always started out walking the beat. And, of course, 
you know, you didn't have any radio or anything, so every 30 minutes you'd have to come out and look to see if the signal light was on, which meant if the signal light was on, uh, you had to call headquarters to see if you had to call and had to do something. So then we got the radios, you know, um, and uh, they had the long the antennas that you'd have to pull up. And the whips. Was, yeah, of course, they would break off pretty regularly, but <laughs> the radios uh, weren't the quality they are now, and if you, if you didn't have any obstruction you could talk to the officer across the street. So, uh, you know, that was pretty good. And, and, and you know, everything is improved. You, and then when you get, you got an opportunity to be assigned to a police car, you know, when you keyed the mic, the lights would dim, or you blew the siren, the lights would dim, because everything, you know, wasn't like it is now. And, and But the thing that the technology has changed, I think, is you have so much, so much public clamor about what the police are doing with social media and all this stuff. All this electronic stuff is just all around. And it's, in one respect, it's negative, but the ability for police officers to do things that they couldn't do many years ago is, is amazing. We didn't have DNA, you know, fingerprints. We had fingerprints. By the way, I was a pretty accomplished fingerprint guy. <laughs> um, uh, we, had, we had the fingerprints and, you know, all of those things. But one of the things I noticed in one of your podcasts, you were talking about interaction with people. One of the things, um, you know, the, the rule was you try to make every interaction with everybody as positive as you could. Yes. Because particularly the people you're arresting, because if you're arresting someone, they knew the other folks, they were engaged in uh, unlawful activity too. And, you know, this is a little bit of bragging. I, I used to solve a lot of burglaries but I never solved them. Somebody that I had arrested before would come and tell me who did it. Right. I, I so, I mean, Isn't I had- that called good police work? I had a great great record for solving burglaries. I said, boy, put Reynolds on this burglary case. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, I just figured out- You just treated somebody good in the process and, and they you paid know, you some info. And they would call, they'd call, hey, I know you're checking on this burglary, you know, you better check on so-and-so. And, you know, the negative word is maybe informants, but it wasn't informants really. They were you had information a, providers. You had a you had a you had a you had a network and, and the other thing that was really different than it is now is that there was some respect between the lawbreakers and the police. They would say, Okay, you got me. Now you know you know, they wanna pull out their cell phone and text you and tell you to you know, do something to yourself that's uh, you can't do, and so then the cop pulls out. The cop pulls out the new cops. They pull out their text and they send something back. Put your hands up, and that goes. And then they throw the cell phones up and they fight. You know, that doesn't work. You got to have it's human human interaction, and you know, oftentimes they say they say things to you. Well, go do whatever to yourself, and you say, well, you know. I can't really do that, <laughs> you know? Or they would say something about something you might do to your mother. I don't do that either, you know? But and you, and you can't, you know, sometimes you see officers today, and, and I don't want to be critical of them because I know they have a lot of challenges, but they find that so offensive. And, and <laughs> we keep talking, they need to de-escalate. That's an opportunity to de-escalate, right. you know? You don't, you don't get into a big fracas over that stuff. But the fundamental... Or take it personal, right? Can't, can't take any of that personal. Right. That was one of the things my first chief said. Don't ever take any of this stuff personal. They don't know you. Uh, they say bad things about you. Don't take it personal. And he said, and you know what? He says, he always said to me, the public is not always right. Don't forget, they're always in charge. Right. So have respect for the people in the community. That's they good are advice. always in charge. It's good advice. Um, you know, and it's, it's, and it's interesting, you know, here, the, it's amazing to me at, at this point in your career. I mean, you're still looking as looking at as many use of force incidents as I am and IAs and officer involved shootings. And, and I actually kind of feel sorry for the people that are involved in those with you looking at them because the years of experience, um, you know, you give, you're going to give the officer the benefit of the doubt, but you're, you're not going to give them your, that's where I kind of learned in, I'm not a police apologist. I'm not here to make up a story for you. You either do it and articulate it correctly. 
How have your years of experience helped you continue to review those incidents on a daily basis? Sometimes very significant incidents. Well, um, experience is one thing. But the other thing I, I, I try to do is spend uh, somewhere around 40 or 50 hours every year in, in training to stay current with, with what is happening around the country in different force events. And, and, you know, right now there's so much of it in the news media. You can, you can keep track of a lot of it. As a matter of fact, as you know, I have a lot of these places Googled. And every morning I probably read from an hour to two hours of force events all around the country and sort of analyze uh, what, what happened and why it happened. But back to uh, when we're looking at those cases, I always wonder, uh, what did your sergeant tell you to do? Uh, is your sergeant signing off on these? Because I, I'm, not, I'm not really anxious about uh, critiquing what the officer did so much as whether what the officer did was consistent with the direction he or she had. And as, as, as you know, Eric, in your classes, we always talk about you know, the policy, the training, and what, what's next, the supervision, supervision. the accountability. Mm -hmm. And you know, I hear this all the time, and you do too. Oh, we gotta have more training, more training, more training. That's an excuse. Right. We've got to have more accountability. And, and if somebody's uh, concerned about why officers are doing something, I'm concerned about what their sergeants are doing about right. it. Because, it, you know, I'm... And this is a phenomenon... You, you've heard me say this many times. The most important person in the police department is a sergeant. Yeah. And people consider this to be a phenomenon. And when they look at us like we're sideways when we're talking about this stuff, which is... You know, everyone wants to criticize the officer, but the officer has to learn, has to have guidance. They don't know how to do the job, especially when they're brand new. They got to learn how to do the job and how you learn could, uh, you know, I often say to sergeants, you could be destroying somebody's career. You could be teaching them completely inaccurately. Well, yeah, when they go to be a sergeant, of course, <laughs> they go from being one of the boys mm -hmm. or, or girls, one of the guys, to being uh, the parent. Yeah. The mentor, the trainer, uh, you know, uh, you know. Sometimes your dad would say to you, "Hey, I'm your father, not your pal." Right. And when you become a sergeant, you're the father or the mother. You're right. not the pal. Right. And and you know, if you don't correct them, uh, and and guide them and mentor them when they do minor things, all you do is is wait for the big event, and then everybody throws their hands up and uh, you want to fire the officer, arrest the officer, all of that stuff, and you say, well. The system failed this police officer. I think that leads to a, a great uh, tie-in to my next question, which is because we dealt with the officer. So let's go right for that, let's go right for that juggler, which is the, the supervisor and, and, and how we hold them accountable. Um, with your years of experience in leadership and command and training, if you had a young sergeant in front of you uh, asking you for advice, um, what, what advice would you share with that young sergeant? Well, um, I would try to uh, make them or convince them to understand that those officers they have under their control, they have those officers' success in their hands. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, sergeants, I think, and in some departments, of course, sergeants not the first line, they have these... Uh, variance is that, but the first line supervisor, the, right. the person that has the squad, has a, an enormous responsibility to train, teach, and really important to correct. And don't wait until it's something major. Correct. Call them aside because it, it's 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 an ongoing training session every yeah. day. Every day, what do you call it? Every day is a training day. Every day is a training day. Every right. day is a training day. Every day is a mentor day. Every day is a new day. Every day is, yeah, awesome. every day yeah. is an opportunity for every officer to make someone's life better. Right. Right. It's, it's, and, and, you know, I think one of the points that I, I like to, to say, and, and you and I have seen this, because we'll go back to our first conversation of me sitting next to you at the IA class, but the one thing you failed to tell everybody is that, during the full course of the IA class, I would just make fun of all the instructors. And 
and point out there some of the issues that I would see. And a lot of the issues that we see is that, and you and I are very strict on this, and I give you a ton of credit because you take every DLG class. You, we've gone to force science together. We've done extraordinary training together. And at your, at your level of knowledge base, there's a lot of people that stop. It just, you know, they, they, they talk about things that they knew 10, 15, 20 years ago. And, and I realized that um, how dangerous you are on the fact that you're continually getting updated information. So when you go to a, go to a PD and they start throwing around one association versus another says X versus Y, you're able to jump right in there and deal with it. And when here we're talking about the guardian mindset and, 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 and if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is that the, that one of the keys to success to any career is maintain to keep yourself relevant. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, a new officer and even a new sergeant, they, if they want to be successful in their, their career, they need to take advantage of every training opportunity they have. And, and back to something we talked about earlier, it's important. I would always tell, tell my new officers, Make sure you read the local news. Keep up to date on what's going on because that gives you a sense for what the community thinks about you and your colleagues. So make sure you, you keep involved with, with what's going on in the community so you have a sense for, for what's being said. Your finger on the pulse of and, what's going on. And even now, you, you can check the local newspaper. But, you know, if you have a local... Uh, yeah. Uh, Facebook page, chat, Facebook, chat whatever. Yeah. Sort of keep an idea of what's going on around and, and and it's important because if you, in that process, particularly with with the uh, internet now, you get to know who the so-called rabble rousers or, or critics are. That's important to know if you're confronted with one of them, so that you can be sure yeah. that you don't allow you to lose your cool, so to speak, that you're yeah, you know very it. respectful. And, and, and I, I think you've, I've heard you say this on, on one of your <laughs> podcasts. Uh, if you're respectful, uh, sooner or later they're going to be respectful. Right? Right. But you can't expect them to be respectful if you're not respectful. So, uh, you know, that, you know, if you start having that encounter, um, it just goes downhill. So, in, so the next level. We're living in a world now where... Anybody who has the ability to do so is going to jump ship. And I think it's a very bad time for law enforcement. Um, and um, what I, my personal views are that we're quickly losing a lot of history in law enforcement because the people that were very valuable, and maybe even some that weren't valuable, but the people that were valuable, they just don't want to do the job anymore. They don't want to be the police chief. They don't want to be that center of attention. They're not... They just don't want that job. So what we're seeing across the country uh, is, uh, is in this level is not even, not just a recruitment problem, but now we're having very young and sometimes inexperienced people being handed the reins of being a police executive. Um, some have, you know, very good education. Some have, and some might be ready for the job. Some might be not be ready for the job. But, uh, but because this is a job, I would say, um, you know, if I look at your career and I, I would say that the thing that you should have done for a career would be a police chief builder. And because I think that any police, well, you were with 35 of them, but you have the opportunity here now where you're looking at a lot of these younger, I'll just give you an example here in, in, the, in my state, I was talking to a lieutenant yesterday who the chief and the, the deputy chief just left last week. They decided they're done. And, and this person is, will probably be the next chief, but not mentally ready to be the next chief. Like he, he is not in his today plan. So what, what pieces of advice would you have or what recommendations would you have to the person that has accepted that position of police chief and now they have to carry the ball down the road? Well, I'd, I'd back up just a little bit. I would say don't take it if you're not willing to make the hard decisions. And what do you mean by that? Well, uh, one of the things that they're going to be confronted with sooner or later is officers not following the rules. And, and uh, discipline 
in some police departments, discipline is the dirty word. And it can't be a dirty word because discipline is what ends up being a well, uh, what do you say, well-oiled or a, a professional police department comes from good conduct, following the rules. If you don't like the rules, let's change the rules. Setting uh, margins. Yes, setting uh, margins and, and being able to correct it. And, you know, you have these, uh, some chiefs that they, I probably shouldn't say this, but some chiefs spend all their time trying to keep their job and not much time doing their job. And doing their job is, is making some very hard decisions, sometimes politically uh, not to the liking of, of the governing bodies. You know, I had to do that a couple of times. And, you know, one time I told my city manager, I said, he goes or I go, you choose. <laughs> you know, it's that simple. Uh, and you have, to, you have to understand that one of the hard things is, is, is the discipline. But it's, it's, it's only as hard as you make it. Right. Uh, you know, I had one of my selectmen early on, I, I had an officer that I thought I should fire. Actually, the first officer I ever fired. <clears throat> I thought I should fire him, and I was agonizing over a little bit, and my select, we had my selectman, Wayne Snow was his name. He said, stop agonizing. You know what you're supposed to do. You know what you want to do. You know what you should do. Do it. That's you're beating yourself up over this. Nice. Do it. And so uh, I took that advice through my whole career. I didn't agonize over that stuff a long time. I, I, I never did it when I was mad. I, sometimes that took a day or two to get over it. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, when, I, when I had the presence of mind, you know, I would, I would go through the process of whatever it was. And, and, you know, I know these police chiefs, they have all these stories. Oh, what if they appeal it? Well, good. Uh, you're, Go ahead, drop the line. You know what the line you're is. You're hereby notified <laughs> that your services are terminated. You're going to appeal it. I just want to make sure you tell me what time the hearing's going to be because I do not want to be late. That's it. It's that simple. Hey, we, had this, we just had this conversation over lunch because... You know, and, and I'm not going to get mad about it. Yeah. You're not going to lose any sleep. I'm not going to get mad about it. I mean, you have a right to appeal it. Please do. Yeah, we had this conversation over lunch because we. Uh, I often see a lot of police chiefs that are run by their unions where there's always fairness and, and listen, there's, there's, there's procedural processes. If you don't like it, you have a right to, to fight it. I'm okay with that. We shouldn't be, management shouldn't be making decisions that's going to lose, but at the same time, we should be making decisions. And one of the challenges that I often get is, well, my union doesn't like that. And I'm like, well, I don't really care. Do well, sometimes, you? And sometimes that's a good sign yeah. uh, that they don't like it because, um, you know, they're looking out for their folks. And, you know, part we of We call the, it wiggle room. Yeah, wiggle room. Well, <laughs> part of the, you know, let's, let's be, as long as we're being candid here, let's be candid. Part of the problem we have in the U.S. of A today with the image that's being uh, uh, portrayed of police is because some chiefs didn't terminate some officers that should have been terminated, and they got us in this trouble. And, and unlike the days when, when I started, uh, you can be in whatever town, no matter whether it's a community of 10,000 people or 2 million people, that gets on that six o'clock news, and it's all over the country, and and what the police have to, police on the police officer on the street has to be confronted with, when he meets meets a lady on the street, who just came out to do some shopping after watching the news. She looks at the officer, and you know what she says? I wonder if he's going to be as insulting as that officer I just saw on the news. So. It goes back to my earlier thing, you know, every encounter with every person has to be as absolutely as positive as you can make it. And if you're, good, if you're stopping people with traffic violations, and you know, the object, you know the objective, this is what I used to say, you know what your objective is? Have them say thank you. That's your objective. And they will. And they will. They absolutely will. they will. All right, as we come to the end, I have two doozies for you. 
No doubt. No doubt. You know me better than that. Right? I gotta make a. I gotta make a Reynolds record here. So I just have to. Yeah. Um, so you've touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to. And you dealt with I, my first. I had three doozies, but you took care of one. One was advice on handling the community, and you talked about that relationship building and that very much. Uh, my next one: media and social media have increased over the years. What is your opinion on the manner and the type of scrutiny that police are receiving on a daily basis? Um, some deserved, some undeserved. And um, unfortunately, the, um, some of the activities uh, that police officers become involved in um, get typified as activities of all police. So once it hits that, uh, network that internet and social media and all once that hits that it's hard to re retract it mm -hmm. so the police have to make sure that the good information gets out as well as the bad info they can't stop the bad information but make sure the good information gets out also but still goes back uh, you're going to be judged on your your individual and collective behavior the police department yeah and, and if you're out in the community, um, you know, if you're involved in the community, you live in the community, your family is involved in the community, you have a sense for the community, um, you're probably going to be more respected than if you're a visiting police officer. Right. You know, one place that we worked, they used to say about the, <clears throat> the, 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 the blue gang came in and kicked ass and took a few names and they went home. Right. They didn't... They, it was something like had 80, no vested interest. 80, 85 percent didn't live in the community. They had no vested interest. Well, you don't. You, that doesn't work. Yeah, Just, and, and in the world we live in today, which is sad, perception is reality. Absolutely. And you know, it's like we talked about in other podcasts: six hundred eighty thousand police officers. You know, there is one percent of those police officers that don't belong here. Yeah, there is. Oh, yeah. Uh, in any profession, you in know, any profession, and, and you know, uh, one of the comparisons I always like to use and. It may be unfair, uh, but I use it anyway. And that is that <clears throat> about 100,000 people die every year for medical mistakes. Right. 100,000 don't die because of police mistakes. Right. But those mistakes, from the, uh, when the police are involved, they try to criminalize human error. And I think one of your instructors talks about criminalizing human error. Right. They try to criminalize human error well, we wouldn't try to criminalize a doctor making a mistake in an emergency situation. Why would we try to criminalize a police officer making a human mistake in a, in a critical situation? We shouldn't do that. That's not to say, if it's criminal conduct, let's do what we have to yeah, do. We're going to bring Paul, Dr. Paul Taylor on to talk let's, about that, but that, that comes to my favorite saying, which we'll say over and over again, is if you want to evaluate human error, you have to make it human. Yep. You, have to, you have to make sure that it takes all sides. So, last question. Now I'll give you any, any last final pontifications that you would like to add to, to your repertoire. Um, what does the future of law enforcement look like to you? Well, I, I think, uh, um, having traipsed around this planet for a long time, I think that uh, it's a little bit cyclic. And I, I would think that um, as crime increases and the public all of a sudden realizes that less police, less enforcement equals more crime. When they start to realize that, and in some senses they have started to, they're going to say, we need to reassess this a little bit. And, and I think you've seen where the defund police, uh, a lot of the cities that had that mantra have retracted a little bit from that because all of a sudden they realize things are going off the rails here. Right. And so, uh, you know, I think you, you've said it before, and it, it's so true. Um, there has to be parameters of behavior. There has to be consequences of misbehavior in society. And if there's no consequences for misbehavior, people continue to misbehave. And, you know, it's like, like your kids. You say you can't watch TV after 9 o'clock, and uh, you go in at 9.15, they're watching TV, and you don't do anything about it. The next uh, week, they're watching it at 9.30. Next thing you know... They're up all night watching TV. Right. Well, look, I said 9 o'clock. That's it. 
uh, and and you know there has to be consequences. I I mean I listened to a, a session last week with uh, Perf and uh, the commissioner of New York was on and said, well look, all of a sudden we let twenty percent of the inmates out, and he said, is it a mystery that we had an increase in crime? Yeah. How would you expect that you weren't going to have one if you let 20% of the people incarcerated all of a sudden out? I guess for me, is all that stuff sounds so reasonable. Um, you know, why, why do we feel like we're talking to a wall often? Like, you know, and I think what really frustrates me, and I say this to the kids in the academy and their kids nowadays to me, um, but it's, it's, that vocal 5% is really causing all of the instability. And, and I think if, to go back to what you said about community, I think if they go back out into the community and really start interacting with the community members, they'll see that the vocal 5% is not everybody's belief and desires. No, that's true. And, and, but we've got to make a concert, concerted effort to do that. <clears throat> and... and here we go again, talking about police chiefs. Some police chiefs think the answer is we'll have some community meetings. We'll have the minority community. We'll have the politicians. We'll have this community meeting, and everything will be well. And while they're having the community meeting, some police officers being rude and disrespectful, having some encounter that is unnecessary. Community meeting didn't do a thing. You wasted your time. You wasted your time. Because, you know, it goes back to my theory, every single encounter has to be as positive as you can possibly make it. No. And, and you just, you have to live with that. And the fundamental thing about police officers, one thing, one thing you gotta remember, always be truthful. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I mean, I see these departments where officers lie and they have some excuse for not terminating. If you lie, you, are going to be in the de-hiring program fast. <laughs> That's true. Soul-crushing discipline, as we would say. Soul-crushing discipline. You cannot tolerate that because... Yeah. There's got to be some standard. You know, and, and a, one of the things I would, I would say to my officers, you know, when the bank president comes in and said, Chief, I didn't do that, i got to be able to believe the officer. Yeah. I got, and I say to him, i got to be able to believe you right. when the bank president said he didn't do it. I gotta believe you. Right, right. Well, I know I've made history here in the fact that you've done a lot of things over your life, but this is your first podcast, isn't it? It is. Yes, and so we did this on purpose because I had to, you know, with Jake running the board here, we're gonna put this in the vault, and and it's. Well, I'm proud of Jake running the board. He's done a great job, but uh, but for me as my mentor, and uh, you know, I sing this from the hilltops. I would not be here today, but without you. So um, you have you have given me a vision and a drive, and also an operational know-how that I hope I can continue to give on to others uh, as you have. But I got to tell you, um, you know this because you are you're one of the most humble men I've ever met in my life. You're one of the most influential men I've ever met in my life, and anybody that says power must be strong and loud, does not know power, that's for sure. Um, As we wrap up here today, uh, is there any last words you'd like to leave to the law enforcement community? Uh, I I think we probably covered it, but uh, just go out every day to try to make someone else's life better. So I always say in, uh, in my classes that the difficulty we have is that we can't show the younger generation why years of service as a guardian is so beneficial. And I play the One Republic song, and I, and I, and I try to show them that the one thing I truly believe at my age and is that the day it's time to go to the Capurli Gates, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna look back and have no regrets because I know that I served my community. I served my country. I served my staff. I've served my family all, not in that proper order at all. Um, but how how do we get a, a generation that doesn't understand the value of service to understand that the gratification is not right now, 
it's not today. No one's ever going to pat you on the back and accept the chief and say, nice job catching that bank robbery. The gratification is the end of the ride when you can look back and know that you've made it work. Well, and you, you really do need to understand that when you, <clears throat> an officer, when they interact <clears throat> with a member of the public, that's probably one of the most important things in that person's life. And they will remember that encounter long after uh, you've forgotten. I mean, when I, after I retired, I, I would go to the post office and people would come up to me, Chief, I appreciate what you did back. And so I have no idea who this person is. <laughs> I, I, and I don't have any recollection of the event. But they called, someone went and did something for them that was very important to them. That's what it's all about. That's, that's what it's all about. That's what service is all about. That's what it's all about. Well, I thank you for your time. Glad you could come down to the studio and do this live. And, uh, and you know, I love you, so I appreciate you. Well, I'm glad to do it. All right. Uh, I'm going to leave the rest of you with the out, as you always know, help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you.